We live in a culture that is very individualistic. Our country elevates the individual a great deal. And we say things like, what is your accomplishment? What did you do to make yourself you or great? Uh, this is your life. Now we have concepts of community culture in our individualistic culture like sports. There is no I in team, right? So we're looking at the community, the team, not the individual. And the military is a very big community culture. Uh, the drill sergeant just takes it right out of you. There is no you anymore, it's us. You're gonna get a haircut, it's gonna look the same way as everybody else, and here's your uniform. Welcome to the military. And the military culture is that kind of culture in general. It's a very community-oriented. What is best for the community, not for the individual? But for the most part, we are all about our individual rights. I don't think we have the ability to think any other way in our country, in our culture. We're looking for, number one, we're looking for uh, our individuality. But a community culture is less about personal identity and more about what is best for the community. In fact, if you were uh, all about your identity in a community culture, you'd be considered a maverick or something like that, and it wouldn't be considered a compliment. So whether that community is a family or a tribe or a nation, uh, life is more about the good of the community rather than the individual desires. Shame and honor are a big part of community cultures. You may have heard that like in Japan, if you lose face. We don't really have that concept here. We can kind of understand it, but not in the same way I don't think we can if you are Japanese and you grow up in that type of culture. Shame and honor are concepts these cultures use to guide them. We kind of use the idea of, uh, how do I learn right and wrong? And my conscience will be my guide. It's a, it's a two different things. So the, so the lesson is called honor and shame. And the three points of it are honor, shame, and in the church. What is an honor in a community? What is honor in a community? It is that integrity to follow the community. John, uh, Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. This is when the commander of the Lord came and talked to Joshua. He said this, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our enemy? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. What was he saying? He says, I'm not for either of you. I am for my community. And my community is God. If you're following God, you're part of that community. If you're not, I'm not with you. Joshua would have understood that completely. Because as I understand scripture, he would have been from a community culture. They thought tribally. They thought nationally. The commander defined honor for his people. It is to follow God. God is the leader of the community. And if you don't follow the leader, shame will come upon you. And if you talk to a shame culture or shame community type culture, shame is, is the worst thing that can happen to that culture. 
A dad might say to their kid, you shamed me, not you blew it and it's on you. That's how we do it, right? You blew it, it's on you, you live with it and you deal with the results. In that culture, the dad might say, you shamed me. You shamed the community. And it's a whole different outlook. Joshua recognized the community he belonged to and he worshiped God. The commander of the Lord said, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. Joshua 5.15. Joshua did not say, I just had my feet pedicured. Can you give me a day? It was not about him. It was about God, the community, and what would not shame him. What is honor in a nation? For Israel, it is following the teachings and directives of God. It is worshiping God appropriately. It is loving your neighbor, those who fear God with respect. In the end, in the beginning, God became their identity. And prior to Jericho, all men not circumcised did not please God. Do you recall that story? Joshua chapter 5. They took a whole day off to make sure everybody got circumcised and was caught back up. There was no honor in the men who were not circumcised. And the whole nation needed to be honorable to God. Because it was a community. It was a community. They listened to God's expectation because this was honorable. What about family? What about family in a uh, community system? Rahab was a person of honor. Of course, Jericho might not have thought that, that she helped the spies, but she was from God's point of view, wasn't she? How? Well, she recognized that God was the true creator. She heard the stories about how God helped the Israelites out of Egypt all the way to the time when they crossed the River Jordan. I mean, this is God compared to the other gods in her area. They were nothing. The real God is the one she wanted to honor. Did she know all the details about the law of Moses? Probably not. Did she know all the commandments and the statutes? All 613 of them, I think it is. Did she know the real need for forgiveness? I don't know. But she did know something. Real honor will come with following the true God. And she wanted to honor him, not shame him. As an honorable person, not just to God, but to her family, what did she do? She shared the news with her family, her community. She didn't hold it back, keep it in secret. It says, hey, this is my understanding. That's your understanding. No, she said, this is the understanding. I'm sharing it with you. And she saved her mom and dad, her brothers, those in her family from this coming destruction. Joshua chapter 6, verse 23. She honored her parents. Shame is the second point. My mom used the word shame a lot. I mean, so much so that I started making comedy skits from it. Shame, shame. And I had fun with that. But even her concept of shame had to do with individual shame. Shame on you for doing that. 
Shame on you for what's going on. You should be ashamed. It had nothing to do with the Reeves clan family name. I mean, we had enough people in the family that pulled up their pants very strong and created work and effort and did everything that pleased the family. You know, if I did something, it wouldn't destroy the name. It wouldn't put the name of the clan or the tribe down. It was shame on me. See, that's, that's the individual concept. You might recognize this when a child or grandchild embarrasses the family. In our individualistic culture, we might say they made a bad choice. They will have to live through it or they will need to overcome. The family might be embarrassed, might try to hide it, sweep it under the table or whatever by individual actions, but the entire family is not under this banner of shame by one person's individual actions. Achan, in Joshua chapter 7, created real shame for a community culture. When he coveted the things that belonged to God and stole them. You recall that story? His shame, disgrace, or honor, done in secret, although his immediate close family seemed to know what was going on, for they were punished along with him. Caused the death of 36 men. Made Israel run in defeat and throw it in there. Caused other people to blaspheme God. Because God isn't big enough. Listen to the community shame as you read this passage. For his tribe, Joshua chapter 7 verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith. In regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, here's the family, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. How did the Israeli people break faith? I've often asked that in times past. They didn't do it. It was Achan. But I understand scripture or have learned scripture from an individualistic point of view, not from a community point of view. He shamed them. And shame is worse than anything in that kind of culture. He shamed not as just his parents, his grandparents, great-granddad, but the whole tribe. Chapter 7, verse 1. But the entire nation was shamed. Do you realize Israel broke faith because Achan did an individual thing that was wrong against God? In the church, are we not a family? Are we not a community? Are we supposed to be a group of individuals meeting in one place? Or a bunch of individuals made into a community of believers with one head? When we do wrong, do we affect the community 
and shame God, or do we say, that's their problem and they have to live with it? Shame can be rectified. It can be. How? Well, by getting rid of the shame. You go to passages that deal with uh, someone who's living in sin and what is the body supposed to do? Make it aware that this is not an appropriate lifestyle. That's shame. A lot of these people in Scripture, you'll see concepts of community. The church is a community. It's a body. How we act individually affects or should is supposed to affect the community. Even in Muslim cultures today, not all of them, but a few, those who are, and Muslims are very non-individualistic as far as a culture. They, they have the shame concept. Having, they have a thing called honor killing. You've heard of that? And we just can't wrap our minds around it. Why? Because somebody should have a choice to choose for themselves what they want to do and what they want to be. If they want to do wrong or if they don't want to do right, they should have a choice. But in that culture, it's not about your individual choice. It's about how you represent the family. If a child turns from their faith or lives against their God's teachings, the family shame is too great. So to keep the honor of the family, a dad might kill his own wayward child. In extreme cases, among the extreme, uh, we might say the extreme parts of the Muslim faith. To them, that's not wrong. That is saving honor in the family. And that's paramount. It's not an individualistic society. We look at scripture, we can see individualistic concepts. But there's a lot of community concepts. So after the death of Achan and his family who shamed Israel, God led the people to take Ai and the rest of Canaan land. Their shame was taken away and they had honor again. As the angel of the commander of the Lord says, I don't follow you and I don't follow them. I follow God. He is the one with whom I am dealing honor to. And so should you. And so should you. In the church, does Jesus expect individual responsibility? Absolutely. We have individual responsibility. Neither culture takes away from the idea of right and wrong, although they have a different way of pouring it out. He expects it, whether you've grown up in a culture like ours, which is very, very individualistic, or if you've grown up in a community culture like Japan, for instance. If you are a missionary in Japan or maybe even China, you may find that a disciple who is learning about Jesus has to go to the older in the family first before they choose to make a decision about following Christ. Now, that older can be a Christian or not a Christian. But it's so ingrained in the family to say, I have to respect the family so much that I have to talk about these great decisions with them first. 
Now, we do recognize that it's not the family that we worship in total, right? It's God. And if in Japanese culture someone said, no, you can't do that, I'll shame the family, well, you're gonna, you should follow Christ first. But it's not that they're trying to dismiss the missionary or dismiss the gospel. They're respecting their culture that's so ingrained in them they can't look at it from an individualistic point of view. That's where the elders, the leaders, the matriarchs and patriarchs are so important that we've lost in a lot of ways in our society. I mean, even in church, how do we view an elder? Do we view him as the community leader? Or do we view him with someone with a different opinion than I want? Individualistic culture. Community culture. The elder is the one to lead, to shepherd. The elders in, our, in the church's case. As the one we're to go to. In a community. So, the largest decisions in this community-type culture like Japan are not done without discussing it with those who are older in the family because they are respected that much. But all individual people need to choose to follow Christ. There is no excuse for not choosing to follow Christ regardless of what culture you come into. As Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 8, 21 through 22. Matthew 8, 21 through 22. Let me turn to that real quick. Matthew 8, 21 through 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. So Jesus, would he have grown up in an individualistic culture like ours or more of a community culture? Community culture. So what is he saying? Well, here's somebody in a community. He has a family. He's saying, it's good to have a community culture, but I come first. Let the dead bury their own dead. You come follow me. You become part of a new community culture. See, Jesus is saying our blood, community cultures, our family, our clans, whatever, are not more important than my culture. I am the head of the culture. Honor me. Don't shame me by not following me in what I have. You come ask my advice. You come ask what you need to know, how you need to live in those individual decisions that affect the family, the community of Christ. See, it's community of Christ. It's a community, not an individual. And that's really hard, I think, for our country to wrap itself around to. We are all about making our way across the West struggling to have our own place of land, defining our own place in life, having our own job or whatever. It's mine. 
But Jesus in the community of Christ says, it's mine. Don't shame me. Honor me. I am the head. As in a community culture, you need to come to me. Doesn't he ask that? We're not to pray to our elders. We're pray to God through Jesus Christ. He is the head of our community. Yes, we're all little stones added to the church, right? The apostles, the prophets, and everything. But we don't have individual markers of engraved and says, well, this is John Stone. We're not looking at it from the individual point of view. That's John's part of the church right there. I've engraved it. No, the individuals become one church. One body, one church, one truth, one God and Father above all, in all, and through all. Not many. It's hard for our culture to wrap that around our heads because we are ingrained in it. Jesus said basically God's family and community are more important than families sharing the same bloodline. Follow me. So as we read the Bible, we can recognize the community culture even during Jesus' time. Arranged marriages, living according to the law of Moses as a people and a nation, tribal concepts, but we can also see it in the church. Like Cornelius. Cornelius called his relatives and his friends and close friends to hear Peter speak. And he reached out to his community. Acts chapter 10 Verse 24 and 48. And when his community heard it, they were baptized into Christ. Why? Well, in part, the community around Cornelius trusted him to bring them the right teacher. He was more or less kind of the head of that group. And they trusted him to bring the right teacher who brought the good news, and the good news saved them. I think there is something to a family leader who is respected in their community, whether it be the family or the church or individual or the town. They can help people come to the truth if they are honored that way amongst the people. Like Lydia, she and her whole household were baptized. Acts chapter 16, verse 15. Why her household? Did she force it on them? I don't see that as part of the gospel message. She was a leader in her personal community. She trust, they trusted her to bring somebody to teach the good news. And that's what happened. They saw her faith, and her faith helped other people see faith. She was a community head in a community society. Jesus had shame and honor, at least that's the point I have up here. 
Why did Jesus' community try to throw him off a cliff? You remember that, Luke chapter 4? Just right before that, they were saying, isn't this Joseph's son? Wow, he's saying some great things. He's coming here to our town. Isn't it? I mean, they're recognizing that he came from a family. And then at the end, after he said what he said about the Gentiles, they were shamed, more or less, because he didn't agree with what the community expected. And what did they do? They tried to throw him off the cliff. So not... So an individualistic society isn't wrong in and of itself. A community society isn't wrong or right in and of itself. But we need to know how to follow God in any kind of society and to understand how he taught us scripture Christian ideals even through what type of community they would have understood completely. The church is not made up of individuals. The individuals are part of one temple of the Holy Spirit. We are one body, one people, one bride, one community. The Holy Spirit does reside in us individually, but also as a group. Why did Jesus have shame on the cross? Well, I think right off the bat, just going to the cross is pretty shameful. But he did no wrong. God, who did no wrong, putting on something dealing with shame, do you think it kind of shamed the Father? That he is put in a place of shame? because he went to the cross for us? Isn't there something about where are you, Father, at the cross? Something like that? Do you think that was shameful for God to see that? Jesus did no wrong, but he's thrown into shame in a shame community concept that we have a hard time understanding. Maybe that's part of the context here. Looking to Jesus, though, do you recognize, though, the shame was taken away? The founder and perfecter of faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And is seated at the right hand of God hand of the throne of God and now back in honor it's hard for me to think of him in shame or despising the shame when he is God but he wants us to not be in shame anymore either he wants us to be honorable and he's the one that takes away our shame a reproach that affects those who are made in the image of God. When we read the Bible, it may be important to discern individual responsibility and community responsibility. And as the Church of Christ, the Lord's Church, 
All individuals who are part of it are in a community. We are not individuals. Because we have one head. And what we do in and out of our community either brings shame or it brings honor to our clan leader using that type of wording. It's not about they did it. That's their problem. It's a community. Remember the Church of Christ is a wonderful thing. And the Church of Christ, the Lord's Church, is honorable. And if you are part of it, you are honorable to God who is the head of His church. So with that, the lesson is yours. If there's anybody who has needs this morning, any concerns in your life, or anything that they'd like to share, please come forward now. It's together. How much encouragement do you need to remember God? Now, I don't mean about God or OMG, that acronym when we get excited, but the real and true God. How much encouragement do you really need? Hopefully not much. Why? For those who have dedicated their life to God, Having a healthy relationship with God is a blessing. It's a daily, if not hourly, recognition. A real communication that drives our daily events. Yet how easy is it for people to morph God into something he is not? Because we are not going back to our roots of faith. Because we are letting myths' truths override God's truth. I think this is one of the reasons why we are supposed to gather together as the Lord's church, like we are here on the Lord's Day every Sunday, to pray, to study, to fellowship, to be with each other, to learn, to remember, and to be mostly reminded of things that we should already know and be doing. Today's lesson is back to our roots, remembering truth, dealing with the past, and moving forward. So the first point is remembering truth. How easy is it to balance a wooden plank that's sitting on top of a cylindrical device? You know what I'm talking about. We did that as kids, or some of us. And I would say if you tried it in your youth and you were good at it, it didn't come naturally. You practiced at it, you worked at it, until you learned to do it well. Some today, uh, are learning to do things like this to build up their core strength. And it's usually because they suffered some sort of physical injury or have some need for physical therapy. And the body might struggle with core strength. So getting on that teeter-totter, standing in that thing that focuses your core to work is important because it helps build up things that we're lacking in our body. Where is our core? This is a good question to ask a follower of God. Where is your core strength? Is it in the truth? The reality, people standing on the truth have a firm and strong core because they're already balanced. 
And Joshua brings the people together to remind them of their true foundation. He brings them the writings of Moses that were given by God. Why? Because there in line resides the foundation for them to stand firmly. So Joshua built an altar to the Lord. He did so because Moses commanded it before Moses passed away in Deuteronomy chapter 31, 9 through 13. They offered up sacrifices to God. But they also did something else that was part of their foundation, their roots. As individuals and as a nation, what was it? They read God's word. Not just read it, but listen to it. Joshua chapter 8, 34 and 35. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that was written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Perhaps if our core strength was good, we wouldn't have certain struggles related to God's truth. Struggles with faith and struggles with obedience. Why? Well, because we would remember our roots, the roots of truth in God and His Son, Jesus Christ. But our reality is what? We get weak in our core strength. If you're weak physically in your core strength, is it a good idea just to stay on the couch? No, you got to get up and do something to strengthen it. We always need to be training our and remembering truth where we get our core strength from spiritually. I don't think it is an accident that Matthew's account of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount ended with Jesus teaching about the rock and the sand. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. That stand on the rock as opposed to standing on the sand. Which one's going to counter, give you the best balance, the best strength? the best foundation. We need to rely daily on God's firm foundation to keep that core strength spiritually. And always remember to get back to our roots of faith in God. Second, dealing with the past. The past is something everyone who is born has. You realize that? Everyone has a past. Some things are good. Some things are bad. Some things are just neutral. All these past experiences have potential to spur us on to be better people for God. If we can put them in the right perspective. Now, I don't mean a perspective. I mean the right perspective. Getting back to the roots of truth. You see, God that God laid out for us. Helps us to get the right perspective with the bad experiences, the good experiences, and the neutral experiences. Whether it is our collective past 
as, as the church or as people of faith, and we can look back to the old law and see the people of faith there, or our individual past that we all have and we all have to deal with. To put things in the right perspective, it helps to have core strength. And the core strength comes from the truth of God. If you studied Scripture just a little, you'll recognize in the Old Testament what we learned from the past. can help us focus better on our roots of faith, especially if put in the right context. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Why not desire evil? Why is it not a good idea to indulge, to participate, or to even consider things that are evil, like idolatry or sexual immorality or grumbling against God or challenging God? Why? Well, the basic answer, I think, is pretty simple. Death, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about that in context. A death coming from opposition to God and His truth. A death that comes from people who don't learn from the past. We put ourselves in dire straits when we desire evil. With God on your minds, who wants to put themselves in dire straits with God? If you're really thinking about God and God is on your minds, do you really want to put yourself in dire straits? No. No. Actually, sensible people, according to Paul, won't do that or don't want to do that. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. Sensible people who are thinking about God are going to go, I don't want to put myself in that kind of jeopardy. So they'll do everything they can to try to restrain themselves. But we can look at the past to learn things, can't we? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 through 12. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come, therefore let anyone who insists that he stands take heed lest he fall. If we insist that we stand, but we're not standing on the truth, guess what? You better be careful. You're not a sensible person. You're going to fall. Is instruction good? We tend not to go to a counselor if our teeth hurt. Why? Because the counselor has not been trained in things dealing with the teeth. Likewise, why would we go to, to a seance or wicked people or to false teaching Anywhere else that doesn't give us proper instruction in our faith. Why would we go to anywhere else? A sensible person, according to Paul, just wouldn't do that. Why would we go there and 
think we can deal properly with our past mistakes and sins. Or understand and live out those instructions given to us to lead to a proper life in God. Jesus wants to look to the Godhead because we all have a past to learn from. Good, bad, and neutral. But followers of Christ have a future because Jesus' blood, as Lewis brought up in the Lord's Supper, or somebody brought up, I'm sure it was Lewis too, is what we all need to take care of those past issues, to bring us forward into the future. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 says this. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things of this earth. For you have died, and your life uh, is hidden with Christ in God. How do we deal with our past? We put it into God's hands. He will take us into the future as we focus our minds on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Sensible people. So we need to move forward, and that's the third point. Moving forward is considered a positive. I hope you would agree. But we need to know which forward is the correct direction, don't we? And in many ways, Israel at, very time, at various times did a very good job at following God in the right direction, going forward, even after some sort of generational tragedy where the people fell away for such a long time. They got back into the word. They got back onto the foundation. They worked their core strength, and they're moving forward. Like the commander of the Lord, Joshua chapter 5, 13 through 15, whose whole motive was to follow God. It was not to follow Joshua. It was not to follow Joshua's enemies. It was to follow God. The sin of Achan is a troublesome one, Joshua 7. We talked about that last week, I believe. It was a setback. It was going backwards. It halted the move forward for Israel. But they thought God, they sought God for the answer. And what? Remain focused on the truth that comes from God. Jesus said, follow me a lot. Did he not? He said, follow me a lot. I wonder if that's Jesus' idea of what it's like to move forward. If you want to move forward in the life, in this life, spiritually, follow him. Because he's taking you in the right direction. He didn't say to, his, uh, to follow the new guru of whatever. Did he? No. He said, follow me. Follow me. Listen to these passages and consider the past Jesus is asking people to leave and where he wants them to go. 
Matthew 4, verse 19. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Do you know the context? He's talking to his disciples. Leave that behind and follow me. How about this one? Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Matthew 8, verse 22. What's he asking them to put in the past? What's he asking them to go towards? And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 10, 38. So the question is, where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Back to our roots is not a call for nationalism. Back to our roots is a call to standing on the truth that God has for us through Christ. Israel often needed to be reminded about getting back on to their roots of faith in God. Often. It would not be wrong to use this as a continual reminder for followers of God today. It would not be a bad sermon to share. Hey, remember your foundation. Remember where the roots of faith and truth in God are. Stand on that and move forward or follow Christ. Paul reminds us that our identity and our salvation... The truth all people need to, is to follow Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Back to our roots. Remembering truth. This leads us to God's core values and teachings. We should follow. Dealing with the past. Will you follow poor examples? Or will you grow in proper instruction and moving forward truly it's only found in God through Christ to move forward is to follow him the lesson is yours if there's anybody who has any needs this morning concerns prayer requests or otherwise please come forward now as together we stand and sing I surrender all to 